Oh, to see the dawn of darkest day, Christ on the road to Calvary. Tried by sinful men, torn and beaten then, nailed to the cross of wood. Oh, to see the pain written on your face, bearing the awesome weight of sin. Every bitter thought, every evil deed, crowning your blood-stained brow. This, the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us, took the blame, bore the wrath. We stand forgiven at the cross. These are the lyrics of a song written by Stuart Townsend. It's one that's on repeat for me at times, especially leading up to Easter. Today, we continue our study in the Gospel of John, moving into the final hours, final minutes of Jesus' earthly life. And as you've probably understood by now, we will actually spend the rest of the month of March detailing the suffering and death of Christ. So think of these remaining weeks of Lent before Easter as an extended Good Friday. Pray and ask God for help with me. Father God, what we don't know yet, please teach us today. What we don't have yet, please give to us. And please make us the people that you desire us to be today for the glory of Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. What kind of Christianity do you want? One with or without the cross? A Christianity that makes you feel good about yourself? Or one that exposes the depth and breadth of sin? One that fits your educated worldview? Or one that challenges your entire understanding of reality? One that promises happiness, health, prosperity? Or one that promises suffering and mistreatment? Do you want a Christianity that produces nice people as its primary goal? Or one that produces worshipful, courageous, humble, joyful, conviction-filled people? Are you willing to follow a way of life that many today and for all of history think is foolish? That many think is weak? That many think is pathetic and worthless because of the cross? Now today, there's no special, magical, super practical thing that I'm going to say today. Because all we have is Christ crucified. All we have is a church, and if we don't have it as everything, then we have nothing. All we have is the gospel message. And honestly, I debated whether to even have points in the sermon today, because there's really just one message, and that's Christ died sinners. And I know we're studying the Gospel of John, but before we kick in, I wanted to read these verses from Romans 3. And they're not on the screen, so I apologize. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. 
Their feet are swift to shed blood, and in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law, the law of Moses, says that it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world would be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now you might think, what the heck does propitiation mean? Why are we talking about righteousness and blood and curses? Why did those verses seem so harsh about the state of humanity? Or maybe why do we even need to talk about sin? Haven't we evolved as humans beyond that point? C.S. Lewis once said that nice people are lost in their niceness. Do you think that we are too nice for this message today about the cross, about sin, about the wrath of God, about atonement? Substitutionary atonement, Christ's death on the cross for us, is the core of the Christian gospel and the most pivotal event in human history. Most of the content in the Gospels leads us to this moment in Jesus' life, and even about half of the book of John covers the last week of his life. Everything we've read and heard so far is leading us to this moment, the death of Christ. John is leading us here because of the centrality and the significance of the cross. Now at this point in the story, Jesus has been tried in an unjust court. He's been beaten, he's been whipped, he's been spit on, insulted, and the crown of thorns has been placed on his head. In the garden where he was arrested, he was already sweating blood in his anxiety. He very likely did not sleep, eat, or drink since he was arrested the night before. If anyone could be considered ready for crucifixion, now is that time for Jesus. He's probably bleeding profusely. His body's in shock. And they still make him carry the crossbar of his own cross to his own deathbed. Now the vertical part of the cross is usually at the site already. And when Jesus carried that crossbar, the beam would have been placed on the back of his neck, and his arms would have been pulled back and hooked around 
that beam, and his hands would have been tied to it. It probably weighed 100 pounds, and since his hands were tied, you can imagine how ugly and painful it would be when he falls in his weakness. The Romans were very familiar with execution by crucifixion. It's estimated that possibly tens of thousands had died in this way, either criminals or enemies of war. The typical way the Romans did this was to nail the ankles together, forcing the feet to lay sideways on top of one another. And then they would insert a peg in the middle for the person to sit on so that their bodies wouldn't fall off the cross. And even though the nails themselves were horrid, the cause of death was usually hemorrhaging. Gotta ask my doctors here. Or asphyxia. The historian Josephus, who personally witnessed many crucifixions, referred to it as the most wretched of deaths. It was the most painful mode of execution for the most despised people. And to counter the argument that we have evolved into a nicer, gentler, more civil humanity, even Hitler had Jews crucified less than 100 years ago. And there are also more recent historical examples. It's even from the pain of crucifixion that we created a word to explain it excruciating. A person could be on the cross for days And it was always out in public places in order to shame the one being crucified. And usually they didn't even get a proper burial, but instead were left to vultures. Now we don't know exactly why, but John decides in this gospel to keep the details of the crucifixion to a minimum. And my personal thought, that if you were the best friend of of the guy hanging on that cross, you probably don't want to relive that moment. And you probably want to respect that person. But regardless, the cross has always been the primary symbol of the believer's connection with the death of Jesus. It is central. See in verse 17 how they organized the three being crucified. Even the simple fact of Jesus' placement in the middle of the other two criminals communicates his centrality. One commentary I read said that it's as if he not only deserved to be classified in the same group as the other criminals, but it's as if he was the most wicked and detestable of the three. Remember earlier in the book of John, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, his cousin, John the Baptist, proclaimed, see the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John was careful to make sure that we knew that Jesus' death occurred in the season of the Passover because Jesus is the fulfillment of the Lamb that was sacrificed and its blood painted over the doorways of Jewish households in Egypt the night before they escaped slavery. That blood of the Lamb spared each household from the wrath of God in the final plague of Egypt where every firstborn died. Now Jesus fulfills 
this truth in a greater way because he himself is the only, he is the one final lamb who takes away sin. Also remember back in Genesis when Abraham's son Isaac carried the wood on his back that would be used for the sacrifice that God was calling Abraham to. Isaac himself was nearly that sacrifice, but God stopped Abraham from giving up his only son, and God provided a ram stuck in the trees instead. Abraham himself said before that hike that God himself would provide the sacrifice. The fact that Jesus carried his own cross to his place of death should bring up that imagery of Isaac carrying the wood on his back to the place of sacrifice. Again, verse 17 says that Jesus went out, meaning he left the city to this place called Golgotha, which in Latin, that's where we get our word for Calvary. Going out of the city, Jesus' blood was shed for sin and carried out of the camp, as it were, which is how the Old Testament laws prescribe the sacrifice. Leviticus 16 says that the blood of a bull and goat, which was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Theologically, these Old Testament laws were pointing to two significant understandings. Propitiation, which we heard already, and expiation. Propitiation is about God's wrath being taken away from us because Jesus took it on himself instead. The first sin animal sacrifice was meant to take away the guilt of sin away from the people because it was now placed on that innocent animal, representing the living blood, the living life given as a payment for sin. Expiation comes from the second goat. The high priest would lay his hands on the animal and confess the sins of the people. And then the goat would be sent away into the wilderness, away from the people, away from the sinners, symbolically representing that their sins were taken away with it. So in expiation, the sin is removed and sent away so that the people could be clean. Further, Deuteronomy, another Old Testament book, says that a man, a hanged man, is cursed by God. Not only was Jesus killed on that tree, but his body did not remain there overnight. He was buried the same day in fulfillment of those scriptures. But more importantly, he became the curse, even though he had done nothing to deserve it, even nothing wrong at all. John Calvin said that these realities were fulfilled in Christ, that we might be fully convinced that atonement has been made for our sins by the sacrifice of his death. Hebrews 13 says that Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Galatians 3 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And 2 Corinthians 5 says that for our sake, he made him, that means God made Jesus, 
to be sin who knew no sin so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. The cross is an incredibly dreadful thing, yet it is also an incredibly wonderful reality for us. The cross highlights just how much God hates sin, and the cross highlights just how much God loves you. Oh, the dreadful weight of God's wrath against sin, and oh, the incredible beauty of God's infinite goodness toward us. So how do you see the cross? How do you view the gospel message? Do you think it's worthless or do you treasure it? Are you offended or do you rejoice? Do you see it as foolish or do you see it in the way Pastor Alistair Begg said, it's an invaluable token and pledge of the power and wisdom and righteousness and goodness of God. Second point today is that Jesus is king and savior of the world regardless of the opinions of the world. Why did Pilate and the Jews murder Jesus again? Recall the theme of Jesus' kingship leading up to this point in the Gospel of John. In chapter 18, the Jews brought Jesus to the high priest and then to Pilate, saying that he was doing evil. Ultimately, they wanted Jesus dead. So they're just mustering up as much false testimony as they could. They did not have the authority to put Jesus to death, so they needed Pilate to do it. They needed Rome to do it. So Pilate, knowing the gravity of the offense that the mob was seeking, he asks Jesus, hey, are you the king of the Jews? Because claiming to be king or committing treason in the Roman Empire, outside of the charge of murder itself, is probably the only thing big enough to allow Jesus to actually face the death penalty. But Jesus said... He was born to be a king, but he says that his kingdom is not of this world. And it's likely that Roman culture could have folded Jesus into the options of all the gods if he wasn't so absolute in his theology. So Pilate tries to appease the crowd by allowing Jesus to be beaten, flogged, have a purple robe put on him, have a crown of thorns put on his head, and, and the soldiers mock him. But isn't it true that evil doesn't know when to stop? If we get away with one level of sin, one level of evil, it's very likely that we'll try the next level. So instead of saying enough is enough, the evil in the hearts of the mob resort to allowing a murderer to go free while the innocent is carrying his own cross. And by, in verse 15, which we did not read today, it's just before this this section. They said that we have no king, the chief priest did, we have no king but Caesar. And by doing that, the spiritual leaders of the Jews are choosing to publicly prefer the tyranny of the Roman Empire 
which they greatly hated, rather than the just government that God promised. Again, Calvin says, wicked men, in order to flee from Christ, not only deprive themselves of eternal life, but draw down on their heads every kind of misery. On the other hand, the greatest opportunity for happiness is to be subject to the kingship of Christ. So despite the apparent tragedy of the scene, Jesus is Israel's king. And Pilate ends up reinforcing this in the strongest way possible. Jesus' cross does not announce that he claimed to be king, but Pilate writes, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. It's a statement, it's an announcement. Pilate meant it to mock Jesus, but God meant it to proclaim the truth to the nations. Pilate senses that something huge and important is going on here, but he lacks, completely lacks the moral courage to act on those instincts. The chief priests wanted to further minimize and mock Jesus by changing the sign to say that Jesus said he was king. In God's sovereignty, he uses the intentions and actions even of wicked people in order to accomplish his own purposes. If you remember just weeks before, Caiaphas, the high priest, could not help but describe Jesus' death as salvation for the nation. And now Pilate cannot help but describe Jesus as the king of the Jews. The light is shining and winning despite the darkness and despite every attempt to suppress its truth. On the cross, Jesus was lifted up as if he were elevated to glory. He had the title of king over his cross, and it was written in three languages that could, that could communicate this reality to much of the world at the time. Previously, Jesus said that he has sheep who are not of this fold, those who are not Jewish, those who do not speak Hebrew or Aramaic. Later on in Acts, Peter is going to take the gospel message to Latin speakers in Caesarea. Paul and others are going to take the gospel message to Greek speakers in Antioch. And if Jesus were crucified today, that message above him would have also been written in English, Mandarin, Russian, Arabic, Spanish, Portuguese, French, and German. The opinions of the world are just opinions. Some may be right, but whether an opinion is right or not has no bearing on the essence of the truth. Now, we don't have time to dig into all the Old Testament stories and songs and prophecies and show how they point to Jesus, but the Old Testament is Scripture because Jesus said it was. This Bible is the breathed out scripture of God because ultimately it testifies to the one and only same God, to the one and only perfectly revealed Son of God, the Savior of the world, Jesus of Nazareth. Listen, I don't care what you think about certain pastors and preachers. I don't care what you think about me. I don't care what you think about music in the church. I don't care about what you think of the status of the evangelical church in America is today. So long as you do not miss the substitutionary atonement of Christ. 
Do not miss this. If you miss this, or if you don't understand it, or you reject it, then you don't have true Christianity. You don't have this Jesus. You don't yet know the one and only true God. So as humbly and lovingly and earnestly as I can say it, this is true. The substitutionary atonement of Jesus is true, whether or not it resonates with your opinions yet. Jesus died for sinners. Jesus died for you. This is the gospel of God. So what do we do? That's the third point today. When the Spirit of God cuts us to the heart with these truths, what do we do? That was the simple response of the people when Peter preached the gospel for the first time to thousands in Acts. Well, let me say this. I know that pronouns get a lot of press in this day and age, but I want to give a simple example of how the Bible uses the importance of pronouns in the human language. Look with me again at John 19, verse 17. It says that they took Jesus as if they could control God. They crucified him. They took his garments and divided them. And they cast lots for his clothes. And in verse 24, it ultimately says, So the soldiers did these things. Now, is it only the four soldiers who are at fault in the cross of Christ? Of course not. John is showing the action and the responsibility that we all have in our sin. We are the soldiers. We are Pilate. We are Caiaphas. We are Barabbas. We are the mob. Peter, in that first sermon in Acts, proclaimed to thousands, saying that you have killed the Son of God. This is why the song, What Have We Done, is so powerful on Good Friday because it, it seeks to put us in the place of those who actually crucified Jesus. The song says this, O oh my soul, O oh my Jesus, Judas sold you for 30, I'd have done it for less. Oh, my soul, oh, my Savior, Peter denied you three times. I've denied you more. As the nails went in, I was standing right there. And as you breathed your last, I shook my head and I cried. Oh, my God, what have we done? We have destroyed your son. Our fundamental problem in life is not fill in the blank. Our fundamental problem in life is sin. And it is the wrath of God in response to sin. So what will we do? Will we worship or will we walk away? Does anyone else find it incredible here, as we read this passage today, that at the foot of the cross, all we have left is Jesus' best friend, Jesus' mom, Jesus' aunt, and another woman where we don't have any other biblical facts about her at all. After these years of ministry, 
This is where we're at. The disciples are MIA. One of them may have already taken his own life. Listen, Jesus frequently saw people walk away. Whether after hearing his message for the first time or the hundredth time. So friends, if you follow Jesus, realize that you follow a man who was murdered. It's not exactly the most popular message that people flock to. It doesn't ring well on our obnoxiously large billboards that we have along I-15. Now, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to go into great depths about the interaction between Jesus and his mom. But just to be clear, in that culture, Jesus did not disrespect her by calling her woman like the way we might read it in our language and culture. How Jesus addressed his mom was actually a respectful way of speaking to her. So what we should note about this moment, that despite his incredible agony, Jesus still respected and loved his mom, but not so much that it got in the way of his mission. Not so much that he did not follow God and the call that God had placed on his life. Remember that Jesus said, if you love father or mother more than me, you are not worthy of me. Christ attended to his mother only after he is on the cross, the primary thing he was called to in life. So we also should begin with the worship of God, the obedience of God, Obedience to God. And afterwards, in relation to our proper worship of God, we, we assign to humanity an inferior place. As Christians, we love our family. We honor our family. We provide for our family. We care for our family. But we do not worship our family. Our earthly relationships in general as significant as they can be, they are not paramount. They're secondary in our relationship with God and obedience to God. I once worked with a man who said that when he was younger, he was a missionary in Juarez. Now, most of us today know that that's not the nicest of cities on many levels. And this colleague he said that a man once came up to him because he knew he was a missionary. And this guy comes up to him and says, I have killed 12 people in my life. And he wondered what he should do. He was lost. He felt the guilt and the shame. He needed help and he knew it. And as far as I can remember, my colleague told him, I could tell that he was struggling to figure out how to respond to him. He said, well, get your life on the right track. Start showing God that you're serious about following him. And maybe God will forgive you and you'll work things out with God. Now contrast this story in Juarez with another example. Before he became a true believer, Martin Luther was a monk and in his personal journals, he said that there were days that he confessed his sins for up to six hours. 
How could we live in that way? None of us are made to handle that level of anxiety. And it's not that we shouldn't confess our sins. The Bible actually says in many places that we should. But confessing your sin or taking communion or whatever it is for you does not save you. Listen, don't get your life together because you can't. You can't just get yourself on the right path. And even if you could, you definitely wouldn't be able to stay on it. Whether you're the murderer or whether you're the sold-out religious person or anywhere in between, all you can do is come before God to kneel at the foot of the cross and say, oh my God, I am so sorry. I am so desperate. I am so lost. I am so weak. I am so self-righteous. I have sinned so much. All I can do is say in faith, I need you. I have no other hope. I've lived here in Utah for, I think, like 13 years now in total. And the longer I'm here, I'm shocked that even some of the most simple aspects of the gospel are sometimes not understood, but sometimes they aren't even heard. The grace of God provided through the death and resurrection of Christ is a gift. You don't put your life together. You receive the gift. You pray and say, God, I receive the gift of your salvation. God, you see me as purely righteous only because Jesus was purely righteous and Jesus was perfectly righteous. Now today I did want to bring out some more practical application of the cross and the atonement, but I think we're going to save that for the coming weeks as we continue this story, and Good Friday in particular. So as we close today, I come back to the question. Does the shame of the cross cause you to shy away? Does the shame of the cross deter you from following Christ? Or does the essence of the reality of the cross drive you to press in? Does the meaning of the cross drive you to press in? If you take nothing else from, from this message today but a response to that question, that's exactly where we should be. Now I'd like to transition us to the communion meal. And Jen, you can come forward. Um, communion servers, um, feel free to, to come forward. Um, we're going to do things a little bit differently today. Band, prayer team, please feel free to come forward and take part in communion sooner rather than later. And church, we're going to start singing while we're still taking communion. Um, 
And we want to sing about the love of God for us through the cross of Christ to remove our guilt and our shame and our sin. And as we prepare for this meal, I want to read an excerpt from this very good book called The Care of Souls. After appropriate personal preparations and careful attention to liturgical directions to avoid desecration. That's, that's a, lot of, a lot of words there. The high priest was instructed to take the blood of the sacrificed bull with him in, into the most innermost sanctuary in the temple. The most holy place where God dwelt. And sprinkle it there on the very throne of God. That sacrificial blood, having been consecrated as most holy, was then brought out into the sacred courtyard where it was used to sanctify the altar of burnt offering, the place where Israel's daily sacrifices were offered to God, and the altar from which they themselves ate in order to participate in God's holiness. This was proximity to the presence of the Lord God. Holiness proceeded outward from the most holy place where God dwelt. The blood brought out of that most holy place sanctified the rest of the sanctuary and by proximity, everyone who participated in the services of the sanctuary. This sacrificial blood was the means of sanctification for the people of God. Now, of course, these prescribed Old Testament offerings were only preparatory. Jesus is the true Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. By the atoning sacrifice he offered at Calvary, he has surpassed and supplanted all the sacrifices the Lord gave to ancient Israel. Hebrews 9, 11 and 12 says that, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then... Through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, Christ entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood and of goats, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So the blood of Jesus is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, offered once and for all. Yet what was true at Sinai and the desert wanderings of Israel still pertains. Holiness is participating in the presence of God yet today. Jesus took his own blood, not into the earthly sanctuary, but into heaven itself, where he presented it to the Father as the final offering for sin. And now, as our great high priest, he regularly comes among us by his word and by the sacramental meal to sanctify us by his most holy blood, the means of our sanctification. And Hebrews 9, 13 and 14 says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons 
sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to the living God.